All right, everyone. Our first uh, scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 4. And I'm going to read uh, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Our next passage is from Hebrews, and we'll be reading the last uh, part of chapter 10 in the first verse of chapter 11. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our sermon text is back in Mark, and I will be reading uh, chapter 5 and the verses 25 through 34. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith, has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Uh, So we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and particularly this series of sermons is going to center on a series of nameless women whose stories Mark includes in this Gospel, and he does so on purpose to make some profound points. Mark wants to redefine the kingdom of God and the Messiah by presenting Jesus as a different kind of king. And his kingdom is an almost upside-down kingdom, uh, something very different from what we might have expected from our experience. In order to make this point, Mark takes special care to elevate different marginalized groups of the ancient world, including women. Mark purposely juxtaposes these stories with stories of the disciples, 
in order to highlight key aspects of the true nature of Jesus and the kingdom of God. In fact, I would make the argument that the nameless women come across as ideal disciples in Mark in a way that the 12 never really do. So last uh, time we, uh, we, we met, uh, we looked at the story of Peter's mother-in-law, who Jesus healed from a fever and then immediately arose and began to serve. In contrast, Jesus on multiple occasions has to berate his disciples because they do not seem to grasp that power and authority in the kingdom of God is to be used for service to others. Now, I've also made the case that Mark is primarily writing his gospel to explain to us who Jesus is. However, the problem is not just identifying Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah who will bring about the kingdom of God. Mark's problem is bigger than this, because Mark also needs to correct the prevailing ideas of the Messiah's mission and what the Messiah's kingdom will look like. Today, though, we will not be looking at a misconception about Jesus, but rather we will be looking at a misconception about who we are in relation to Jesus. Last week, we looked at the nature of the kingdom and we focused on the key word service. This week, we will be looking at identity, particularly our identity in relation to Christ, and the key word will be faith. So first, we need to look at this story that we started our readings off with involving the disciples. Now, in this story, Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee. And on the other side, he will enter what is presented by Mark as almost foreign, hostile territory. Here, Mark is painting a picture of an almost ominous, eerie background to the next setting of Jesus' ministry. The place that Jesus goes on the other side of this lake is not a, good, is not a place that's, that's uh, safe for good Jews. It's like a North Carolinian traveling to New York City or something. Jesus enters this hostile territory on a ministry of conquest. However, as we have come to expect, Jesus exercises power in his conquest, not in the form of violence. That's not what his kingdom is about. And his enemy is of a different order. The result of Jesus' manifestation of power as he goes to the other side of this lake in his ministry of conquest against these evil forces is one of freedom and healing. In a few short episodes, Jesus will demonstrate his power over nature, demonic forces, and even death itself. In this pre-modern, pre-scientific world, these three powers, nature, demonic forces, and death, represented the unexplained. They were incomprehensible. They were mysterious, but they were all set in opposition to humanity. As Jesus crosses with his disciples to the other side, an incredible windstorm arises, leading to panic among the disciples. The waves were so high, the text tells us, that the sea is pouring into the boat. Remember that four of the disciples, which according to my calculations comprises 33% of the disciples on the boat, Mason will double check my math, were seasoned fishermen. They had years of experience on this very lake. You know, I once saw a guy uh, one time, uh, I can't remember where it was, but some kind of event, and he was wearing a shirt, and the back of the shirt read, I am a bomb technician. If you see me running, try to keep up. If James and John and Peter and Andrew were panicking, there was probably good reason to panic. 
Yet during what must have been a once in a lifetime severe storm, Jesus is sleeping. In fact, this episode is the only time in the New Testament where Jesus is recorded as sleeping. To the disciples, Jesus comes across as aloof, not understanding properly the danger of the situation. In the first instance in Mark of the disciples actually speaking words to Jesus, they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? These are strong words. In fact, Matthew and Luke, who both use Mark as one of their sources, actually tone down the question a bit when they tell the story. Jesus' response is to rebuke the winds, which seems a little weird, rebuking the winds. However, remember that Jesus is operating in a different world than ours, in our world of barometric pressure and uh, atmospheric fronts and cumulonimbus clouds. In this world, storms were not explained by the causal interactions of natural forces. Storms and bodies of water were generally viewed negatively. They were places where chaotic and evil forces lay, and they engage in malevolent activity in the world. So when Jesus uses the word rebuke, it's actually the same word that he uses when he exercises demons in Mark. Jesus calming the storm is not only effective, but it's immediate. The wind ceases and the text tells us the sea is immediately calm. Typically after a storm, the water in a lake will continue to be choppy for some time. And the point here is that it was immediately calm, lets us know that we are in the realm of the miraculous. This would have certainly been apparent to the veteran sailors on board this boat. In several places in scripture, the only one who is said to have power over the sea is God. In fact, in a non-canonical text, Jewish text called Second Maccabees, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, who is kind of like the bad guy of the book, he's the villain, is said to attempt to command the sea is an illustration of his great hubris and arrogance. But the result of Jesus' calming of the storm is that, is that Jesus, who the disciples had earlier accused of sleeping on the job, turns the tables on the disciples accusing them of cowardice. Have you not yet faith? The disciples' reaction was fear, which is the opposite of faith. In fact, the disciples, who once again are the chosen followers of Jesus, respond exactly the same as earlier crowds of people had responded when confronted with Jesus' power. They asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And it's a question of Jesus' identity that Mark raises over and over again. It's pretty much the primary concern of his gospel. Who is Jesus? And yet, even though the answer should be right there in front of everybody, and particularly the disciples, they're confused. Again, those like the religious leaders and the disciples who are the insiders prove no more perceptive than the outsiders. Now, if we keep these points in mind, what I want to do is I want to take everything that we've just said about this story, and I want to turn to the sermon text here and look at the story of the hemorrhagic woman. I want you to see these stories compared side to side, because I think that's what Mark is doing here. Mark is purposely juxtaposing these stories. So we need to compare the disciples' stories 
and, what, and, and, and this idea that they center on about faith. In this story, we are told of a woman who was afflicted with a condition in which she has continually menstruated for 12 years. It's a medical condition that today we call menorrhagia, which is a result of a hormonal imbalance that is caused, could be caused by any number of conditions. In addition to this agonizing physical toll that it would have taken on the, this woman, there's also the problem for her of Levitical law. You see, certain conditions or activities, according to the book of Leviticus, could render you in a state of what was called uncleanliness, okay? A person who was unclean could not approach anything holy like the tabernacle or God for fear of contamination. According to Leviticus 15, a menstruating woman was considered unclean for several days. Now, the rationale for this, remember this is an ancient society who thinks about things completely different than we do, has something to do with the fact that in the symbolic world of the ancient uh, Israelites, blood was associated with life. And so when blood leaving the body would have been a negative symbol. And since God was life, this person was considered uh, in, in this state of uncleanness. Now, I want to note here, though, that the state of uncleanliness is not a moral category. This isn't saying that she's bad or that there's something wrong. Uncleanliness happened. It happened to all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it was unavoidable in a lot of cases. Um, most states of uncleanliness were simply a, a, kind of like a teaching tool to emphasize the difference between God and humanity. There were remedies for uncleanness. They were relatively simple. And it was just something you did, uh, mostly as a means to show reverence uh, to a holy God in his holy place. So don't think about this woman as being sinful. That's not what's going on here. But the problem is, in this woman's case, her condition continued uninterrupted. And there was no remedy available for her uncleanness. She would not have been able to participate in ritual worship. And that would have probably likely led to her being considered suspect by her community, probably ostracized. People would ask, what, she, what had she done that would cause God to refer, render her unfit for participation in worship? Now, one of the things that we should always do when we're looking at any kind of biblical text is try to figure out, uh, figure out what form the text is taking. Is it a parable? Is it preaching? Is it prophecy? This story is what's called a healing account, a healing story. Okay, and it's very obvious. It follows the script pretty well. In a healing story, there's a description of a physical problem. Jesus intervenes, and there's an announcement of the resolution of the problem. That's the form, the basic uh, plot of a healing story. Now, once we know that, once we see how, the, how our story fits in, what category, the next step, is equally important. We look at that basic form and we see where it's altered, where it deviates, what has been added or taken away from that basic plot line, because that's where the meaning is, okay? So if we look at the text, a few additional pieces of information are added at various points to this structure of a healing story. So for example, it, we are told that she has suffered much under many physicians and spent all she had. That point 
which is a deviation from the normal form. It's an addition to it, okay? We need to take away something from that, okay? So what do we take away? Well, I think this is an interesting detail because uh, for the most part, women didn't really have money in the ancient world, not in ancient Israel. They didn't really have as much control over their money. So how is it that she had money to spend? Now, this is speculation. I'm going to admit that. But one likely explanation is that this woman had been married. Now, her condition provided certain challenges to her marriage. There were certain activities it was forbidden to engage in under Jewish law. And she would have not had the ability to have children, which is also an important point of marriage under Jewish law. Uh, This would have been considered justifiable grounds for her divorce. Now, Jewish law, though, made certain provisions. Divorce was, was okay under certain conditions, but there were certain provisions to provide for a, a woman when she had been divorced. Uh, the divorcing husband was required to pay what was, called, what was termed a ransom. And the point of that was that she would be provided for, uh, that she, would not become, she wouldn't become in danger of being destitute. Think of it as kind of like an ancient form of alimony. And it's likely that this ransom money was what she had used in her quest for a cure. Like I said, this is somewhat speculative, but, uh, you know, hopefully I made a reasonable case. Now, likely, she would have sought out Jesus, naturally, after hearing all these stories that circulated around about his healings. He had been going all around Galilee, uh, healing people uh, quite successfully. And so she boldly approaches Jesus in order to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, this phrase that's being used here is most likely being referred to something that's called in Hebrew, the zitzit, okay? The zitzit was a blue tassel that was worn at the bottom of a garment. There would have usually been four of them uh, by all observant Jewish men. And the wearing of the zizit is actually commanded in Numbers 25. If you turn to Numbers 25, you can read all about it. But we're told that its purpose is to help the, 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 the person remember to follow all of the commandments of the Lord. Now, including this detail that she specifically goes to touch this zizit suggests that the woman may have had almost like a magical view. Believing that if she touched Jesus's holy tassel, so the zitzit was considered holy, that, that somehow part of that holiness would have been transferred to her. Her plan works, though. We read that immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. That word immediate, again, clues us on to that what has occurred is miraculous, just like the storm immediately was calmed. Again, the story departs from a typical healing report. Jesus asks a question. Who touched my garment? Now, at this point, the disciples just stand around and they're like, who knows? There are people everywhere. How could we possibly know who did this? We read in one verse that there are great crowds around him. The disciples have a reasonable point here, yet Jesus won't let it drop. He begins looking around to discover who had done it. And here is where I think this story gets lit, as the kids say nowadays. (laughs) At this point, the woman, 
falls down before Jesus, so overwhelmed with fear and trembling, and tells Jesus exactly what she did. But notice how Jesus responds. I think this is incredible. He calls her daughter. He says, daughter. I said that the central theme of this story is about identity. Notice how the text has described this woman's identity all along. As our theme of our sermon series, she has no name. Her entire identity is this disease that she is afflicted with, a disease that has left her alone and destitute. This is who she is, a poor woman who has foolishly given all her money away to Charlington's who could not possibly cure her. Her disease totally has defined her. What a terrible place to be. And you know, the thing about it is, I bet each of us know people who have been in a similar situation. When Jesus asked, who touched my garments? Notice how she responds. She doesn't answer his question with her own name. You know, Mark in chapter 15 tells us that Simon of Serene has two sons named Rufus and Alexander. But in this story, he doesn't even give us this woman's name. Instead, she tells Jesus what had happened. And it's possible she doesn't really have a name. Well, not a name the way we would think of it. You see, in the culture of the time, a woman would identify herself with her husband or her father or the name of her community. Think about it. Think about the other women named in uh, Mark's gospel. Jairus' daughter, Mary, the mother of Joseph, Mary of Magdala, Mary of Bethany, Salome, the wife of Clopas. These are women who are actually named in Mark. And all of them are named in reference to something else. As a result of this disease, this divorced, poor, unattached woman doesn't really have an identity. At least that's how Mark wants to present her to make his point. So when Jesus calls her daughter, this is Jesus rejecting that her only identity can be found in her father or her husband or her community. This is Jesus rejecting that her only identity could be found in her tragic story. No, this is Jesus rejecting all the ways the world would have classified and defined her and saying, no, you have an identity. You are a daughter of the kingdom and that gives your life meaning and worth. And so you no longer have to accept your disease and you no longer have to accept your loss of family and your loss of place. This is not how things work in the kingdom of God. And as amazing as that is, that simple act of Jesus calling her daughter, the story doesn't even stop there. He goes on to say, daughter, your faith has made you well. You see, this woman saw Jesus as a holy man. And she thought, if I touch his holy zizit, hoping that the holiness would transfer to her, I will be healed. That's her thought. But as I said earlier, this is almost the magical view of Jesus she has. But Jesus refuses to leave her in that belief. Jesus seeks her out, despite the opposition of the disciples, so that she can know that it wasn't magical holiness that healed her, but rather her faith. 
Jesus sifts the emphasis from himself to this nameless woman and declares that it is her faith that has made her well. Jesus holds this woman up as an example of faith in direct contrast to the disciple bros who Jesus earlier castigated for having no faith. So what is it about this woman that demonstrates faith so much that it leads Jesus to exalt this woman in praise the way that he does? I think faith is one of those churchy Christian words that we hear all the time. And it's become so spiritualized, it's basically meaningless. It drives me crazy. This is, I, any of you who have heard me preach for any period of time know that this is one of my big, um, big, big soapboxes is trying to give real meaning to these terms that are so important, faith being one of them. And so this is a great opportunity to see what it is. What actually is faith? You know, all of us, I think, if we got a multiple choice test, we could pick the correct definition out. I get that. But does that mean that we really understand what faith is? Do we really, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to use this word for Mason probably uh, more than anybody else. Do we grok faith? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If anybody knows Heinlein, that makes perfect sense. And it's a great and brilliant point for the rest of you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um. Do we really get what faith is? And I think that if we look at this story of this woman, we can start to gain some sort of understanding. We can make it more concrete. We can make faith more real. We can feel it in our bones more than just uh, be able to identify it on a multiple choice test. Now, as I read this story, I find this woman extremely heroic. She tenaciously searches for a cure, refusing to accept the verdict that this disease is going to determine who she is. She refuses to accept a world that excludes her and robs her identity. She fights against this idea that this is just the way the world is, that she has to accept her condition. She refuses to believe that her condition is inevitable. Instead, she believes that the world can be different. That there is a possibility of healing. That God has not ordered the universe in such a way to deny her a remedy. It is so easy for us to accept the inevitability of things of this world. It's so easy for us to accept that this is just the way that the world is. It pacifies us. It costs us little. Faith, though, is about exercising hope and believing that there is an alternative. An alternative that isn't simply empty optimism because it is hope that's based on a belief in a powerful God that not only can change the world, but loves us and is actively working to redeem this world. A faith willing to believe that touching the hem of a garment might change everything. A God that looks at us and shares with us an identity and a place and a purpose. So that's why I keep talking so much uh, th- this last year, I've really been captivated by this thought about the importance of imagination. Imagination is the weapon of faith because it opens up to us the possibility of hope. It lets us think outside the limitations of this world that we are too ready to accept. Imagination leads us to alternatives that are too often denied to us by our culture and society. 
We don't have to accept that this is just the way the world is because we know that God cares about us. And God cares about his good creation and he wants to free it. A God who longs to wipe away every tear from her eyes and bring an end to mourning and crying and pain and even death. So let's say you're a creative type and you always wonder, how, how, does, how do I fit into the kingdom? This is it. We have need for artists of all kinds to explore the possibilities of what might be. If you're an educator, either formally or as a parent, and wonder how you fit into the kingdom, this is it. Because what we need is teachers to expand minds that the world is a bigger place and our limited experiences are not the only options. Those are just a few ways. For the rest of us, we must actively dream dreams of resurrection and live and share those dreams with a world that has been hardened into believing that this is just the way it is. No hope, no alternative. This is the heart of faith, a belief that a world can be made right, a belief that we have an identity that is greater than the one the world assigns us. Then Jesus will look at us and not see our deficiencies, but rather will look at us and call us daughter. That Jesus will take away all the ways we are limited and give us a new identity based on a loving relationship with him. It is a life lived in this truth that comprises faith. As the author of Hebrews tells us in the most beautiful and clear vision of faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This woman hopes for healing and she persists despite all the evidence to the contrary. This is what faith looks like, a courageous rejection of the limitations that the world imposes and the embrace of the hopeful possibilities given to us by a generous and loving God. To take this faith and apply it not only to ourselves, but to others and to the whole world is what it means to follow Christ, to be a real disciple, the way this woman who isn't named is. If Christ is truly king, then all the forces of this world are subject to him. And we need only imagine what the world looks like when Christ is in charge, when Christ rules. A belief in this vision and a conviction to act in accordance and to see ourselves and find our identity in this mission is what faith is all about. It is this message of hope that we must bring to a broken world that is crying out for such a message. In such a way, we will practice resurrection.